Today on Blue 58, the second game of the 2023 preseason gives the Packers a chance to build on the first while giving us a chance to ask a few questions about trends emerging in camp. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of thepowersweep.com. I'm your host, John Meerdink, and I'm happy to be with you here for another episode as we prepare for preseason game number two. The Packers, as we record, are getting into it with the New England Patriots out on the practice field. Sounds like things are a little bit chippy with the Patriots heading into, well, going through practice number two. And I hope that doesn't bleed over into preseason game number two. I get the feeling it probably won't because that's generally just not how these things work. Everybody gets some time away, we'll cool down, and we'll try to get through the preseason game without actually getting hurt. Because there is a little bit of a different tone for preseason games than there are preseason practices. Nobody wants to be at practice. Not quite as many people want to be at games, but at least a game feels a little bit like a game. And, well, I think you understand the difference there. You just get sick of being out on the practice field, at least on a game. There's a little bit of structure, and there's a winner and loser, and all sorts of things like that. No roster spots are probably going to be decided Friday night, but it helps get you pointed in the right direction, I think. And I think looking at where the Packers are, it's fair to have a few questions right now. I've got four of them. As we head into preseason game number two, I don't know if it's quite a watch list like it was last time, but as I'm looking at the, the way that things are going in camp, these are the first four things that came to mind as the Packers try to figure out what's going on with their roster and start building towards that regular season. So first and foremost, again, Jordan Love. Is his accuracy going to be an issue here in the second game? I think it's a bridge too far to say it was an issue in the first game, but if you're looking at where he came up short, it was the missed throws. Is that an accuracy thing? Is that a process thing? The Musgrave crosser seems more like a process thing and the defense having the right, just hitting him just right with the call to make the the timing a little bit late there so he doesn't get quite as much time to really set for that throw as he would have liked. The screen pass miss to Musgrave does seem like it's it's just a miss. That's a technique thing, and it's something he needs to clean up. So what does his accuracy look like this time? Can he hit a deep throw to Christian Watson? They missed one the first time around. Whose fault was it? Depends who you ask, but can he hit one? Secondly, is he going to be consistent on the mid-level throws? Those are the real money makers. Anybody with the right deep receiver can probably be a fairly effective deep ball thrower from time to time. But I think the real elite quarterbacks are the guys that hit those, you know, 8 to 15-yard throws consistently. And a lot of that is mechanics. A lot of that is process and execution. Those are the the money makers. You kind of have to have all of the attributes working there together. Make the right read, use the right technique on the throw, have the right fundamentals to get yourself in position to make the throw. There can be some really challenging throws in that area. A 10-yard out on the opposite hash ends up being a pretty long difficult throw. And if you can make those throws consistently and accurately, you're going to be a successful quarterback in the NFL. So can Jordan Love be accurate on those mid-level throws in that way? And then finally, I think on the on the short throws, you're just looking to avoid the unforced errors. Everybody is going to miss throws from time to time. It just happens. But the errors that are really avoidable due to things like just technique and decision-making, I think are the ones you really want to erase. And I think that's where You might have some real criticism for Jordan Love on the Musgrave screen last week because it it was a decision to go sidearm versus lobbing it over the top. It's a miss on a really short, makeable throw. 
And it's a miss in a situation where you know that you're going to have a guy in your face. It shouldn't have been like Jordan Love was surprised to come off of the the fake the opposite direction and turn around and there's a guy in his face. That's the design of the play. You're, it's it's a sucker play. You know, I'm, I'm stuck reading, not stuck. I'm I'm stuck into uh, reading when Pride still mattered for our Blue Fifty Eight book club. We're coming up on the end of that, and I'm excited to do a recap of of the entire book all at once. Uh, but Vince Lombardi talked about sucker plays a lot. You you put things into your playbook to prey on people's tendencies. And a, a screen pass, especially I think to the tight end, is kind of a sucker play. Luke Musgrave is going to be sitting there blocking with him, like, "Oh man, you just you're overpowering me. This is this is too much. I I I just can't stop you. I got to let you go." And then you just kind of drift off into the side and wait for the ball to come your way while your blocker set up downfield. Well, Musgrave did his part there. Love has to know that when he comes off the action going the other way, there's going to be somebody in his face and he's got to make his decision ahead of time on, on how he's going to throw things. Just a, just an unforced error there. And I don't want to make too much out of one play, but if it becomes a trend, then you start to have some worries. Elsewhere on offense, I think last week's preseason game refocuses our attention or maybe just adds another layer of focus to where we're at at the center position, the Packers went ahead and threw John Runyon out there at center, giving him some reps as the Myers and Tom battle now adds a third participant. How serious are the Packers really about John Runyon at center? Well, I don't really have an answer there, and they don't really seem to have an answer there either. Pete Doherty, I believe it was Pete Doherty, may have been somebody else, uh, for PackersNews.com did a, it did a piece where he talked to Runyon about playing center, and he was not even at least from the article, not super confident about what was going on there. It's just kind of like, yeah, we're seeing what we can do, trying something new. I don't really know, but uh, it never hurts, I guess, from Runyon's perspective to have something else that you can do. And the Packers are really clearly are looking for options at center. If not for first team, somebody's got to be the top backup behind Myers. Who is that? Might depend on the week at this point. So what happens at center? Uh, this week. Who gets the first crack there? Do we get a new participant in the center battle this week? We'll find out this week on how the Packers offensive line turns. On the defense, I'm looking at defensive line and safety. I didn't spend a whole ton of time looking at the defensive line in week one of the preseason, but now that they've had a little bit more time to settle in, I want to see what Colby Wooden and Carl Brooks have to say. Uh, they are interesting prospects on the defensive line. Both of them have, I think, some real significant pros, and both of them have some cons. Wooden's a little bit small for the position they're asking him to play, but he does have some good athleticism, and he was reasonably productive in college. Not over, overly so, but productive enough. Carl Brooks, meanwhile, is playing an entirely different position than he played in college, and he may have been playing out of position in college, but he just happened to be so good on the edge that he got away with playing on the edge despite not really having a prototypical edge rusher body type. How does he look here in week two? I'm excited to see. I'm interested to see because the Packers are trying some really, I don't want to say unusual because maybe I'm skeptical of calling anything unusual just because it's different. Doing different things is not, is sometimes unusual, but that calling something unusual has, I think, a connotation that it's bad what the Packers are doing may be unusual and it may not work, which would then be bad, but 
it's not bad just because it's unusual. Let's put it that way. And the Packers have a lot of moving parts going on on the defensive line right now. They have essentially three new starters on the defensive line because TJ Slayton and Devontae Wyatt are going to be starting for the first time. And it looks like Kenny Clark is going to be playing more end than nose tackle this year, which is something he's done in the past, but not just tons and tons. It's kind of been trending up, but he, he really seems like the Packers are committing to put, committed to putting him on the end this year. In a way, it's three new starters. And then beyond that, you've got a lot of unknown commodities. Brooks, Wooden, Chris Slayton. It goes on and on with a lot of unproven players, really even up to Slayton and Wyatt. A lot of question marks on the defensive line. I'm specifically looking at the rookies this week, but we'll see how things go and who stands out over the course of the game otherwise. Finally, will someone, anyone, make a play at safety? As we've talked about in the past, the Packers do have options there, and they may have another option coming their way uh, in the near future as a new player potentially enters the game. But will someone, anyone, step up and make the play? We Make a play. Someone take ownership of this safety position. Having options is one thing, and it's great if one of them actually shakes out. But if you can't get one guy to just own the spot, you're left with a bunch of bad options at that point. Having options is only good to a point. So unless somebody figures it out, they might have to do something completely different, which we'll talk about here in the sec- in a second. But I, I just hope someone steps up and, and really owns it so they can kind of settle that spot in their secondary and start worrying about what they have to do elsewhere. Before we move on to what the Packers do at safety, though, I want to take one last look back on week one of the preseason, courtesy of somebody who was there in person. Blue 58 listener Isaiah Warnke was kind enough to make some reports from the field, and I thought we would have a little bit of fun with this. Don't want to spoil it too much, so just take a listen. A report from the field. Dateline Cincinnati for a Blue 58 field report. Today, our intrepid reporter Isaiah Warnke reports on his trip to Paycor Stadium, where he braved swarms of Bengals fans to get a good look at the Green Bay Packers on the field for the first time in the 2023 season. A reporter's first impressions came on defense, where a lack of discipline was apparent early on. A mix of, you know, stupid plays with the rough of the passer, broken coverages, and some great tackles. Later in the game, Sean Clifford settled into a rhythm for the Packers, but to our reporter's eye, the performance on the field wasn't quite as good as things may have looked just from the box score. Brian, his stats look better than kind of my feeling just sitting here watching him in the stands. Uh, I'd say overall, he, uh, I just noticed a lot of kind of out-of-sync timing with, with, with the tight ends primarily on the over-the-top routes. As for the atmosphere of the game, it was something like a circus, especially on the sideline. Yeah, one, one thing that does feel different about being here in a preseason game is just how crazy full the sideline is with the 90-man roster as opposed to the regular season 53. It just looks like a zoo over there. Where will a Blue 58 field reporter show up next? Let us know. Perhaps our next reporter could be you. Again, big thanks to Isaiah Warnke for giving us some reports from the actual stadium where it was happening as the game was going on. If that's something that you are interested in doing, drop me a line at thepowersweep1959 at gmail.com, heading to the Patriots game, heading to the Packers' third preseason game, or really any of the regular season games. If you're going to be there, 
get in touch. We'll do something like that maybe for some future games. Is it silly? Yeah. Is all of this silly? Definitely. So we can have some fun with it. Be a reporter for us in the field. We'll put you on Blue 58. So prior to the very excellent report there we had from the field, we talked about the Packers maybe doing something a little bit different at safety. That could be Rasul Douglas. The Packers have kind of softly cross-trained Rasul Douglas at safety in the past. Matt LaFleur has talked about it a couple times in preseason this year. And now it seems like there may be some steam building in that movement. For his part, Rasul Douglas says the competition is over. Per Rasul, per sources, I'm now in the starting safety of the Green Bay Packers. Take Rasul Douglas's words for whatever they are worth to you. He has strong opinions about just about everything, which is great. It's one of the things that I love about him. But talking about the idea of him playing safety in general, is it a good one? I think you can see it both ways. First, it does give you some flexibility in the secondary. That's a significant pro here. It stabilizes, hopefully, your safety position. It gets Carrington Valentine on the field. And overall, you're going to have more reps available at that outside corner position, which is where Eric Stokes is likely going to be playing whenever he returns from the physically unable to perform list. Secondly, it may be a long-term role for Rasul Douglas. He may age into a situation where he's playing safety more than he is corner. I think it does dovetail with some of his skills quite well. There are some reasons, I think, to not be entirely optimistic about it, but I think it does align with some of the things that he does do really well. It could be a good long-term fit for him. That's not to say everything is possible, or everything is positive. Everything is possible, I suppose. Everything is not necessarily positive, though, about moving Douglas to safety. It's not like it necessarily fixes everything. For starters, it's hard to see how it doesn't weaken corner. Yes, the Packers do have options other than Rasul Douglas at cornerback, but taking him off one cornerback spot does make things weaker there. As good as Carrington Valentine has been, he is probably not as good as Rasul Douglas. Being better at one position, in theory, with Douglas at safety, does that offset being worse at corner? And how much worse are you really getting? You don't know. And an unknown is almost as bad as just a bad thing at this point. So you are going to end up making corner weaker. Second, I'm not sure that everything Douglas does is a great fit for safety. Douglas has great ball skills. He's a great player. Uh, He's a very smart player, but he is a gambler. And just the name of the position, safety, doesn't really align very well with gambler. Gambling and safety are concepts that do not really go together. Sometimes Rasul Douglas can be taken advantage of just because he is a little bit of a gambler. That comes with being a smart player. You can make bets on yourself believing that you are smarter than the opposing quarterback or opposing receiver, and often you will win those, but occasionally you will lose those. And the consequences for losing at safety are considerably greater than they are for losing at corner. The real question, though, I think, is can it be done? Can it happen? Can Rasul Douglas switch right now to safety? Yeah. It's, it's not really that big of a, a question. Uh, in PackersNews.com or at PackersNews.com today, Ryan Wood wrote, wrote a column 
that is not quite the same as the headline seems. The headline is something along the lines of well, switching to cor- from corner to safety is pretty hard. He doesn't really talk about that. He he more gets into the the various moving pieces, and I think that's the complication here more than it really being hard from switching switching from corner to safety. But to just pick on Ryan a little bit, and I think he would be fine with this because he's not in charge of the headlines anyway. I don't think his overall point is that it's hard to switch to safety because I don't think it is that hard. There's a pretty simple precedent we can look at here. Back in 2018, Tremont Williams made not one but two switches in season over the course of about four weeks. Week 6, 2018, he plays 50 snaps as an outside corner. Week 7, the Packers have a bye. Week 8, he's in the slot for 72 more snaps as a corner. Well, 56 of his 72 came in the slot, but he's playing a different position. Week 6, he's on the outside. Week 8, he's inside. And week 9, he's playing almost exclusively at safety, including 52 of his overall 68 snaps at safety as a traditional deep safety. I don't think moving smart defensive backs around is really that big of a deal. You give them a couple practices to get used to it, the concepts are basically going to be the same and generally how the Packers have run things in their secondary, both under Mike Pettin and under Joe Barry, is guys tend to just know all the spots. They they work them all together. It's not like you have cornerbacks and safeties. They've just approached it more as just defensive backs in general. I don't think moving smart defensive backs around is really that big of a deal. Rasul Douglas is a smart defensive back, so that shouldn't be the part that is a problem. The only question is whether having a sometime part-time gambler at safety is really that great of an idea. However, if the alternatives aren't working out at all either, what's really the harm here? You got to have somebody to stabilize that that position. It might as well be Rasul Douglas. You might as well give him a shot and we'll see what happens. Finally, I want to conclude by following up on a topic we mentioned kind of in passing last time around. We talked about Emmanuel Wilson's game and about um, maybe how it wasn't quite as exciting as it looked. This is not about Emmanuel Wilson or about you know how valuable preseason performances are. This is just a reminder to myself as much as anybody who might be listening that third string running backs which is what we're talking about here with Emmanuel Wilson, Tyler Goodson, Patrick Taylor, and um, Lou Nichols. Good grief, completely blanked on on who it was there. Got to keep track of so many names in preseason. But uh, Lou Nichols there, the fourth guy in contention for the number four running back spot, along with Nate McCrary. Let's not forget about him, the Packers' most recent free, free agent signing there too. What you're talking about with, with preseason running backs and, and third-string running backs is somebody who – in all honesty, is not really going to play and is really probably not going to touch the ball all that much. Today, I spent some time looking back over the last decade of number three running backs in Green Bay. How did I define number three running backs? Went through every year's stats. I looked at the running back who had the third most touches. Is that super precise? Not necessarily, but I think we get the broad strokes here. And I looked at three different numbers for those number three running backs. The amount of touches they had on offense, the amount of snaps they played on offense, and the amount of snaps that they played on special teams because those are the three main things that you can look for just in a box score of you know what we're really talking about in terms of how much we're going to see of the number three running back. I'm not going to go through every year, but by and large, it's a guy who's going to get under 50 touches a year, usually under 25 touches a year. In fact, in all but three of the last 10 years, the third string running back has had 25 or fewer touchers in three of the last 10 years, 
four of the last 10 years, in fact, he's had 11 or fewer. It's a guy who's going to play somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 to 60 snaps on offense and anywhere from like 60 to 100 or so special team snaps. Realistically, you're looking at a guy who's going to touch the ball over the course of the season between a dozen and two dozen times a year, play about 30 to 50 snaps on offense and about 100 snaps on special teams on the high end. A dozen touches, maybe two dozen, and 150 snaps, including special teams. That's just not a guy who plays a whole lot. Even if you look at the high outliers on that chart, the guys just aren't playing all that much. The most touches that any any number three running back has had over the past 10 years is Aaron Jones touching the ball 90 times in 2017. Yeah, I know it was a travesty that he only touched the ball 90 times that year, but it would have been about in that ballpark anyway, just in in terms of the the number of touches that the the third string guy had. If you swap him and say Ty Montgomery that same year, it would have been about the same time, same, same rate. He had about 230, well, he had exactly 236 offensive snaps. That is by far the outlier. In fact, he and Eddie Lacy in 2016 are the only quote-unquote number three backs to play more than 100 snaps, and there are some extenuating circumstances for both of them. You're just not talking about a guy who's going to play all that much. So don't let yourself get hung up overly much on who the Packers' third running back is because it's just not going to factor into the offense all that much, or even special teams. We're, We're really digging deep if we're worried about the special teams impact that the number three running back is going to have on the team. Patrick Taylor played the second most special teams of any special team snaps of any number three running back over the last decade in Green Bay last season, and he only played 122. That's fewer than 10 per game. So you're talking about like punt coverage, maybe punt return, kickoff, kick return stuff in there, some mix of those things. Not necessarily even high-value special team snaps. Those punt coverage is probably the most valuable out of those units. Uh, But it's just not a super impactful position. And I think, you know, I included three running backs on my post-draft roster prediction and even my, my first one of training camp. I don't think in my final 53 I'm going to have a third running back because there's really just not a reason to carry one. You can promote a guy up to three times before you have to sign him from the practice squad, sign him permanently to the 53-man roster. Between the guys you keep on the practice squad and other guys you may churn in throughout the season, you can fill out those 100 or so special team snaps that you're going to have to get from your third running back pretty easily. Don't worry about the third string running back. It's not something where you have to spend a lot of time. That's all I've got for you on this episode of Blue 58. I appreciate you tuning in. I would appreciate it even more if you would take a second and share this episode with someone you think will enjoy it. It's going to help more people find the show and get more people involved in this conversation you and I are having about the Green Bay Packers, which in turn is going to help all of us, me included, become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.